Now on to today's program. Uh, but first, a warning. Cover your ears because there's going to be some salty language used by our speaker because her book is all about salt. It's called The Miracle of Salt, which just came out this month. I think it, I believe it's this month. And uh, she's going to give us a well-seasoned talk, I'm sure. And Naomi Duguid, Duguid, Duguid is one of the most well-seasoned food authors around. She's a world traveler, photographer, a great cook, former attorney, and those things are not necessarily in that order, whose past books include Burma, Rivers of Flavor, and Taste of Persia. Those are just a few of the books she's written. And again, she's traveled all around the world and takes pictures and uh, and knows how to deal with publishers because she's an attorney and has contract savvy. But Naomi is speaking to us tonight from her home. I, it is in Toronto. I know it's in Canada and it's in Toronto, I think. And welcome, Naomi. Good to see you again. Thanks, Scott. I'm I'm sorry I'm not in a room with all of you because um because that would be fun. It was really fun when I uh when I was there uh talking about uh Taste of Persia in 2016 and there was some yummy food um to follow, which was great. Oh, um, yeah, say something when you spoke to our yeah. group that was almost a record turnout. We had, I think, at least 100 there. So you you almost Very broke the records. It was a lot of fun. Um, so um, so today, you know, you're, it's the food historians. And so I, I thought I'd talk, um, um, I thought I'd talk about historic ways, the ways that people have traditionally made, had to make salt or harvest salt. And the reason I'm doing that is, if you think about salt these days, it comes in a box, you know, labeled some brand name, and you pick it up off the grocery store shelf, and you don't think about the price of it, particularly because it's really costs really nothing. Table salt and ordinary pickling or canning salt, all of those are very affordable. And, and so we've kind of lost, most of us, I think, have really lost the sense of, of how powerful salt is, how necessary it is, and and how much we owe to it, owe our survival to it, actually. So so my book talks about, I mean, it took me a long time to figure out how to shape the book. It talks about the salt-preserved ingredients, you know, in salt-flavored salt, salts mixed with um, spices, for example, then salted preserved ingredients like some pickles and mango pickle and some chutneys and and then sauerkraut and kimchi and miso and those kinds of things and also salt cured meats and but it also talks about things like fish sauce where there are no recipes for it but a talk about fish sauce and the role it's played and salt cod and the second half of the book is recipes to make use of all these salt cured ingredients that you can make for yourself or you can buy at the grocery store and I think even though those those ingredients are around soy sauce, fish sauce, and so on, we kind of still take them for granted, what, what they give us and also what they represent in terms of survival. So I wanted to take us all back uh, in our mind's eye, I guess, to the time before salt was an easily manufactured, easily distributed substance to a time when if we had salt, we might be rich, but if we didn't have salt, we needed to trade for it. And whoever had the salt could kind of hold us to hostage to get it uh, because we all need 
salt. And uh, if we're if we're hunter gatherers, we can get salt from the blood of the animals we we hunt and eat. But if once we switch to an agricultural, a plant more plant based eating, then there isn't that you know the we need to get salt and we need to find it in some way or other. So I'm sort of asking you to imagine back to earlier times. And then we're, I'm just going to take you to some places where salt's made in different ways so you can visualize what's involved. And so some of these, all these methods or these pictures are taken in the last 25 or 30 years. So there are methods still being used either because people are returning to an artisanal salt-making tradition to make something special that sells for a premium price, or because they're in places where they don't have a choice, and this is how they still make their salt, okay? And um, and I, I'd invite you, if you have any questions or comments, put them in the chat. Um, Kathy's going to be kind of gleaning through. I promise not to do too much punning, harvesting questions. Um, but, um, and so... Uh, and if there's something urgent, you know, I'd ask Kathy to to interrupt me because she said, I don't want to interrupt you because it'll interrupt the flow. But really, we've got the photographs to keep us on track. And there may be something in a particular picture that that you're curious about that that um, that it would be useful to talk about at the time. Anyway, so I'm opening with a picture that kind of tells you a fair amount. I mean, you can see and there's going to be another shot from this place later. This is a shot taken in Japan. This is brine, seawater. The sea is actually through the window. Uh, just we're on the shore on the western coast of the Noto Peninsula in Japan. And um, this water is being boiled over a wood fire. And why is this brine being boiled? Because, of course, if salt is dissolved in water, to get the salt, you have to make the water disappear. And if you have sunshine and breeze, as you do on the coasts of Mediterranean in the summer or the Atlantic coast in the summer in Brittany, for example, in the Gironde or the Ile de Ré, then Mother Nature helps you if you build shallow ponds, evaporates the water, and you end up with salt. But if you're in a place like Japan where really there's not that much uh, sunshine in the summer, it's hot, but it's rainy, um, you and if you're in most other places, you have to boil the brine to evaporate the water. So that costs you fuel. So salt, most salt has had a lot of energy put into it by human labor and also by the burning of fuel of some kind or by the sun. Okay, so that's where we are. So we're going to move along to a very different place. So this is, um, this is in the Atlas Mountains in Morocco. It's uh, on the road between Marrakesh and Warzazat. I mean, off the road, a side road, a very side road. And this is a track that leads to a salt mine. Um, and this is uh, there's a mouth of the salt mine over on the left of the picture. Um, it's not used much now, except by there's one or two guys that work there. And that salt is mostly sold to local farmers for their animals. Because, of course, in Morocco now, people can buy salt that's shipped in from France or shipped in from the coast that's um, cheaply produced and clean and you know tidy in boxes. So this salt has lost its um, its value in a way um, to the larger trade route. But it used to be salt that was traded traded south across the Sahara, uh, and it's um, 
it kind of gave me chills to be here in this place where there used to be camel caravans. The reason there's saltiness on the soil is because, of course, there's salt in the soil as well as some salt deposit inside. And so it kind of leaches out in the rain. And so there's sort of saltiness everywhere. And I just wanted to give you another shot from that area just to imagine then now they're on a small paved road. But this is the kind of thing people using animals to carry their fodder. Um, and uh, later, I mean, the salt usually went out on camels, but also on donkeys down into the desert. Okay, now another very different place. Back to boiling. Um, this is in Thailand. In you can see from the script in the upper right corner, uh, it's in Thailand in a place called Bo Klua, which is sort of a salt place. Uh, Klua is the word for salt in Thai, and it's just on the Thai-Lao border um, in northern Thailand. And here are the salts in um. It's in salt wells. In other words, we think of wells as sweet water, but there are places where the water is salty. And so when you you know lift your bucket up, what you've got is brine. Sometimes it's quite concentrated, more concentrated than seawater. And Beauclerc has a, has a salt well, used to haul it up by hand, and now they've got an electric pump. And then individuals in the village have these, um, have these sort of hearths, um, and they boil the brine down. And so here we are in, in somebody's um, sort of workshop. And it's again a wood fire, and they're boiling the brine down. And here's a later shot from a similar place. And you can see the salt in the, hanging in the baskets draining down into the remaining brine. And there's a bit of salt resting on the surface of the brine. So that's a method that's been going on here for a very long time. And the salt from this area was traded across northern Thailand and into China. Salt was... Um, was a currency in Chiang Mai 200 years ago. It's just, and there's that firewood being consumed and there's that smoke and ash and so on, uh, all to produce salt. So another place in Thailand, this is in Southern Thailand, um, and this is rather more like a, a Mediterranean situation, but a large scale. Uh, and this is salt being evaporated and it's in large basins, and then it's scraped up. So this isn't a very informative shot, except to show you how much salt is gathered. And eventually, um, and these are, of course, salt workers, um, eventually all those piles are scraped up. And I don't know how frequently. Um, I wasn't working on a salt project when I was here. I was just amazed at the landscape. And you see the windmill in the background, because the wind was used before electricity to pump the water into the, into the evaporating basins. Another place with solar evaporation, this is in Gujarat, in the Ran of Kutch. So if you picture the, some of you will know this, but for those who don't, if you picture the V of, of India pointing down, uh, and then if you go up, up the west coast, the, the left-hand coast, and you get almost to Pakistan, that's Gujarat. And, and Kutch is a very hot, dry area with a sort of salt pan area. And in the uh, in the spring, um, the uh, and in the in the dry season, basically starting in in probably December, um, workers come from elsewhere. Of course, they're paid very little, and they come and rearrange the the basins, um, and then they work there as the seawater um, evaporates. And she's noticed she's in bare feet in very salty water. Um, we hope for her that she has no cuts, but I'm sure she occasionally has cuts and those would hurt and very underpaid labor. 
And this is the area where, um, not exactly here, but in Gujarat, where Gandhi did his salt march. Uh, if any of you saw the movie or have read history about India, you know that the British taxed salt. And why did they tax salt? Well, of course, to make money. But what did that mean? Well, there were people who were had been gathering salt for themselves in various ways in various places in India. And the British want, if you're going to tax the salt, you have to control the supply. So they forbade people. It was illegal for anyone to gather salt. And they even put a hedge up. They built a hedge across India, the Great Hedge of India, to prevent trade, to block the movement of goods, including salt. Uh, they wanted to tax it to, to, to make money from people. And of course, it's a bigger tax for the poor because they still need the salt and they have less money. So it's proportionately a horrible tax. And Gandhi then said, said, well, we're going to do this peaceful march to the sea and collect our own salt. And it was that civil disobedience that was one of the sort of symbols of the of the Indian successful, eventually, Indian um, fight for independence. But look at her. It's really laborious. This picture was taken in March and the temperature, well, I have to convert it from Celsius. The temperature was 44 uh Celsius at nine in the morning. That's a hundred and something or other. Somebody do the math, please, and write it in the chat. Anyway, it was brutal, is all I'm saying. Another hot place, but this is very interesting. This is in Senegal, a place called Lac Rose. It was the end of the Paris Dakar car race um, that used to happen. I don't think it still does. And it's a salt lake uh, not far from, from Dakar. And it's the water in it is so salty that actually the salt falls down and makes a crust on the bottom of the lake. It's not very deep. Even in the middle, it's not very deep. And so um, the workers there will also paddle or pull their, a sort of pirogue, a kind of canoe out to the middle and then stand in the lake and scrape it up, scrape up the salt crust and load it into the boat. And then those the women then carry the Bring come back nearer the shore, and then they'll carry these basins of salt to the shore. So here's the here are the tools on the shore. It gives you a sense of it, and the poles for pulling and scraping the bottom. It's um it's a remarkable place. Again, people are being paid very little, and most of the salt that comes from here now, because of World Health Organization measures, uh, most of it is being iodized, so that um, everyone is uh, because there's a real problem with iodine deficiency in many parts of the world, um, including Senegal. Okay, so now to an entirely different situation. This is uh, on the coast of Vancouver Island. And uh, there's a very similar uh, arrangement, I gather, in Oregon with uh, Jacobson Salt. Um, I talked to Ben Jacobson when I was on book tour uh, uh, last month, and it was really interesting. But this is a uh, Vancouver Island Salt, and they've got a pipe out into the sea, goes out about 250 feet and they pump the water in and then they um, they boil it under a vacuum so that they can use their fuel more efficiently and they're making sea salt, you know, salt crystals, the like a flake salt as well as a fine salt. And then they're doing some flavored salts. But they've only been on in operation about 12 years, Jacobson about 10 years. It's quite new, this, this making of... Uh, artisanal sea salt um, in North America. Another place, and uh, which goes back further, but also sea salt. This is the estuary, the Blackwater Estuary 
in Essex in England. So if you can picture the map of England, you think about the south coast and then go around the east corner where it juts out. And then the second jut in is, is the Blackwater estuary. And Essex is the driest part of England. It faces Denmark, basically. And um, so Malden Sea Salt Company, which is the one that many people have heard of because they've been in operation for a long time and have done some very successful, have had some successful publicity starting in the 80s and 90s. Um, and they draw their water from this estuary. Um, and so I went to, I wrote to Malden, I've never done this before, writing to a, a country or a company or an anything to ask if, say, I'm working on a project, can I have access? I usually just try and find my way, but I did it in this time and they were very nice and they invited me to come and have a look and took me out to the estuary. And then um, I went into the, uh, into the company and they, I, I raked and shoveled salt a bit and it was, you know, it's heavy. I mean, it's wet still. And uh, this was a, a settling pond. They'd been boil, boiling the water and then they raked up the salt. Um, and it, uh, again, that anytime you do any kind of physical labor, whether it's in the kitchen or in a field, it gives you that renewed respect for people doing this every day. Okay, now an, an um, another. You, you wanted to have a question? Sure. Is there well, a question? contemporary. So, Vancouver and Oregon salt production. What yep. happens to the fresh water produced and what type of fuel? Uh, I think they put the they put the water back in the sea um, because it's, you know, it's they just put it back in the sea. And that I know of, they're not hooked into any system. And actually, Jacobson's doesn't even save the nigari, the, the magnesium uh, liquid, which is the last thing to drain off the salt. Whereas the Vancouver Island Sea Salt Company they're saving it and they're selling it to manufacturers of uh, creams because it's a muscle relaxant. So it's got a, it's, it's got value. And the guy there said to me, he was a very lovely kind of undefended kind of guy. And he said, I, I was so upset when I realized how much money we'd been pouring down the drain, pouring away the magnesium water, the nigari. It's also an, an ingredient used in making tofu. Um, so, and what was the other question? There was where does the fresh water go? And what was the other question? What type of fuel? Oh, um, they were using uh they were using natural gas in in BC. Um, but uh using I don't exactly understand it. I've never made myself understand it. I should have, but it's uh they do it under a vacuum so that it's a much more their their fuel efficiency is much higher. They're using much less, but it is natural gas that they're using. The only Carbon, apart from the the people uh, doing solar evaporation, people using fuel, the only one I know of that's carbon neutral, you can't really call it fuel, but a different heat source are uh, is in Iceland. I haven't been to see this, but they're using um, the thermal water, the heat from the inside the earth in Iceland and boiling off brine that way and getting evaporation that way. And of course it's, so if you want carbon neutral salt, um, unless you have access to a dry salt deposit, that's that's your answer um, in a northern climate. Um, so here we are. Anybody have any guesses where we are? It's it, we're in Peru. This is a Quechua woman, and um, she was just on her way to to her salt her salt basin. This is near Cusco in Peru. So we're in the Altiplano. 
Plano, and then you can see there's a valley. There's the Urubamba River is in the distance, and there's this very steep hillside. And so what there is here is a salt, again, a salt well, a salt spring, and it's up high. And uh, since the time of the Incas and people there say since before the Inca, um, people have been doing, have had evaporation ponds built down the hillside. And so the salt water, you see the stream of it on her, to the other side of her, it's flowing. And then you, you, everybody in the village now has has the right to have at least one pond and you fill your pond as you would if you were by the sea and then you let the sun and the wind evaporate it and so there's a picture of it isn't that an astonishing landscape i mean it's just it's astonishing to be there and everything is sort of white because of course the salt rises to the surface everywhere a bit as it did in morocco but more dramatically here and um so i went walking Along, it was like walking in rice paddies. I mean, along the edge of rice paddies, but it was this extraordinary, this extraordinary color and extraordinary idea. Um, and so, individual people are then raking up the salt as it, as it, um, as the water concentrates, the salt falls to the to the ground to the bottom of the pond, and then they rake it up. They've had problems, and I write about this a little in the book. Uh, with climate change, the the of course, if it rains when you're partway through your evaporation process, you, you know you've got your brine more concentrated, and suddenly it rains, it's going to dilute it. So um, they normally allow 45 or 46 days. They told me very precise, but they said now it's sort of unpredictable because sometimes it rains in dry season, and uh, so of course it's a setback, and they have to they have it takes them longer. And this all used to be controlled by the Inca, and it was sort of slave labor. Then it was controlled by the Spaniards, who had local lord landlords kind of running it, and again, more sort of slave, unfree labor. And eventually, the village, Maras is the name of the village, revolted in the, in the 70s, and they sort of said, no, we want to control it, and they it became a cooperative. And now everyone in the village is entitled to a salt pond or two or three Um and they've turned it into a corporation most recently. So they sell their salt and they also sell tickets to tourists and they're making a living. And uh, yeah, it's a really interesting story. So I thought, oh, that's that's an extraordinary thing. And the people in Maras think of themselves as, you know, it's a unique situation. But in fact, there are several other places where... Uh, there are salt evaporation terraces. This isn't very glamorous looking. It's not nearly as beautiful, but this is in Basque country, not on the sea. Again, a salt spring and in the Salinas de Añana. And uh, the, the fancy restaurants in Basque country like Mugaritz and so on, they, they say they're using salt from Añana. And the salt again comes down from the top of the hill and then goes into um, ponds uh, evaporation ponds, but here they often it moves from pond to pond as it gets more concentrated, and you see some salt there in storage underneath. It's um it's not nearly as as sort of glamorous and thrilling as as Maras. And then somebody told me recently about another place where there's salt evaporation ponds, and it's just gone out of my mind where it was. Shoot, if I think of it before the end of this talk, I'll tell you. I'm sorry. Um, so uh, people are ingenious. They use what resources they have. Here's um, here's back to some 
Oh, an, an even less advantaged situation. This is in Senegal. So if you can see, there's a tripod. There's um, there's sort of a dirt uh, in a in a in a sack above some liquid. So what this is it is it's in southern Senegal in the Casamance area, south of the Gambia. It's a rice growing area, and I was there in the '90s working on my Seductions of Rice book. I learned a lot. It was extraordinary. But the salt was sort of a side issue, but I was fascinated, and I'm very happy I was because now I have a bit more understanding. The the woman who was came around selling salt in very small quantities. This was her technique. She the river there is tidal, so the sea comes up the river. You know, when the tide rises, salt water comes up the river and then the tide goes down and the river flows back out. So when the before the tide turns, that mud has been infused with salt and salt water. So when the when the river goes, when the tide turns, the river, the level drops as well. She gathers the, the sand from the um, from the banks of the river and she has also gathered some of the salty water and then she collects the sand and she pours the salty water through the sand to rinse the salt out of it. So she's concentrating her brine, if you see what I mean, so that then when she does have to boil the brine, she's starting with a more concentrated brine and she's saving fuel. Is that making sense to you? I hope it is. It's just, again, okay, I don't have much and fuel's in short supply and but I can use my labor and I can use practicality and try and get this, get more of this. It, just an incredible thing. And here she is. There's the salt in her pan that she's boiling. She's finally doing a final boiling down as it's thickening. Amazing, huh? So in Japan, back to, we're back in the Noto Peninsula. This is a, a recent uh, attempt to do an artisanal salt making that is, again, a way of concentrating the brine. So this is, of course, there's electricity. So they're spraying salt water. This is very right by the shore. They're spraying salt water like you'd spray lettuces in the grocery store. They're spraying it onto these screens, okay? And again and again. And the, again, the screens are picking up saltiness, Right. And then what they do is they rinse the screens off with more salt water. So they end up with, you know, a concentrated brine, which then here we are back at that same place with a different view is boiled off. So that's the brine we saw at the beginning is the, is the brine coming off those screens. Another thing they do in that same region, it's the more traditional way, um, which, um, which is still being practiced by two families um, is they, they used to carry the brine from the sea just a short distance, but still carrying these buckets of brine. And now they have a pump. Um, it's pumped and sprayed onto sand, finely raked sand, and sort of repeatedly all day. And then the sand is, is raked up. Just that top surface is raked up and again washed with more brine, giving them a concentrated liquid that they can then boil off and get salt. Okay. So it does change. I mean, all of this has been a constant reminder that that box of salt is a modern artifact, but that it has a history that is full of labor and ingenuity. Here's, um, 
here's a play. This is in Burma, in Sipa, in the Shan states of Burma, and uh, now a country at war with itself while its military is killing its people. Um, but this guy has, um, there's not, there's a lot of fuel because it's very tropical. There's lots to burn. So he's burning wood. Um, and this is, uh, he has uh, brine from a salt well. So rather like the uh, the place in, in uh, Thailand that I showed you. But this, this, um, this brine was quite concentrated, came out of the ground quite concentrated. And he's then, you know, shoveling it out of his boiling vat. Now here's salt that this is uh, this is in Tibet, um, and it's just on the border. It's in Burang, the town of Burang, which is in western Tibet, on the border with Nepal and India, and it's a place of pilgrimage in the summer. People go to Mount Kailash, which is relatively nearby. It's quite a high altitude, um, and so the thing about uh, salt here is this salt is Tibetan salt. Um, gathered from salt lakes, from the edges of salt lakes, and carried now on trucks, but before it was carried on sort of yak caravans, people go and collect the salt in the winter. Um, and then they bring it to Burang because in Nepal, um, there's no salt in Nepal. So Nepalis have traditionally either had to go across the passes in the summertime to get salt, which is the situation here. This is in July. Or uh, they've had to go down into malarial, uh, you know, lower elevations into India to get salt. And so this is an ancient trade. And the guy with the hat, the uh, the colorful hat, is a Nepali guy, a Nyawari guy from the Kathmandu Valley who's a trader. And he's obviously negotiating with these Tibetans who are in the more cowboy hats um, for the price of salt. They're just, you know, it's going to go on for a while. The Tibetans also, they bring salt to this town to trade, and they also bring sheep. And they shear the sheep right there. And then the Nepalis buy the wool and carry that also um, into Nepal, over the pass into Nepal. Okay, so so salt, you know, we have those phrases like after, you know, you meet a friend for lunch or something and they say, oh, I got to go back to the salt mine. Well, um, most salt is um, comes in the form of brine, but sometimes it comes as a crust, a hard crust. That Nepali salt is usually a crust at the edge of these salt lakes, these salt pans um, in uh, in in high altitude at 16,000 feet, 15 to 16,000 feet. This salt comes from the lowest elevation place in the world, the Danakil Depression in Ethiopia. And I saw it for sale. I was thrilled to see it for sale when I was in in Lalabella in Ethiopia in 2008. So you can see the layers of it. It's been deposited in a desert environment, and then someone has cut it out and loaded it onto a camel or a truck, because now both are used. It used to always be camels. And um, it's now up in Lalabella in the highlands and uh, in, in the market uh, being, being traded. It's uh, astonishing the distance that salt has come. And the environment it's come from, too, really baking hot in a way we can't imagine. And we can't imagine laboring in that heat. Um, this salt is uh, salt from India. And uh, there's a black salt there and uh, a sort of self, and it'll have a sort of sulfury taste, kala namak, it's called. And uh, this is for sale in the market in Kathmandu. So this has been brought in by truck from India. And a pile of salt 
in Trapani, in uh, you can see a, a little windmill in the back there um, in Sicily. If you think about Sicily as kind of uh, kind of heart shaped, it's in the upper left corner, in the northwest corner, Trapani, and it's a place that's been was settled by Phoenicians, by by every major um, sort of civilization in the region had a had a settlement here, and why? Because of the salt uh, gathering, um, which has become larger scale, of course, but there always were salt pans along here. And why the salt? Well, because then that's where also the tuna catch happens and anchovies. And so when you have a large tuna, it's going to, it's not going to keep, you need to salt it. You need to preserve it so that the the food you have doesn't get wasted and you can put it, you know, you can keep it till later, you can trade it. Um, so salt and wealth, salt and civilization go together. And um, there are amazing um, sort of not just not really so much ruins as there's layers of history in this corner of Sicily. Well, you could say in the whole of Sicily, but I'm particularly focused on the food history. So this corner of Sicily. Um, so, so I've talked about tuna and plenty, plenty fish being, you know, readily available fish are salted. This is in Senegal, uh, salted lightly here, not salted deeply, but salted lightly enough that they keep so that they'll, they can then dry in the hot sun. So, um, unlike if you think about salt cod, it's salted till it strikes, it's salted over and over again until it's in, infused with salt because it had to last in a damp climate and it had to make it back to Europe from Newfoundland. So the salt was shipped from Europe and then the fish were caught and people settled there, salting the cod over and over all summer until it, until it struck. And then it could be shipped back and used on all kinds of voyages, including on slave ships, of course. Um, this is salt fish in, in, for sale in, in Burma just sort of a reminder that everywhere this is a technique and then these are little salt fish in uh, inland in brazil in uh, cachoeira in uh, in bahia and so this is really necessary protein but in a very portable form that keeps well without refrigeration and people with very little might still be able to afford a little of this to enrich their diet. And, you know, that's that's the role that salt fish has played in many places. Anybody far from the sea has still, once salt fish, you know, was a normal thing, being able to have access to fish protein. So other forms of, and this is getting a bit fishy, I know, but I just wanted to sort of extend this talk of fish. This woman is in um, in the Noto Peninsula in Wajima, the town of Wajima. It's the Wednesday is the market day there, and she's selling. You've heard of puffer fish, perhaps the, the they're um, poisonous. Their their roe and their livers are poisonous, but um, the roe, like botarga, is a valuable, rich, delicious thing. So how to make it safe to eat? Well, if you salt it for three years, the Japanese government does real surveillance and tests them all and so on. Then you have this very delicious um, salted salted roe. And so I bought some from her and tasted her roe and it was wonderful. 
Um, it's just, you know, people figuring out how to make use of all their resources. And finally, we come to fish sauce, which I have a thing for. I just, I've loved fish sauce for years, ever since I shared a, I was in a sort of a pension when I was 17 in France with some people from Cambodia who introduced me to fish sauce. Um, this is in Thailand. This is a very village place. And so the fish are basically um, put layered with uh, layered with salt, which of course pulls liquids out of them. And then they're pressed under a weight and um, out comes out of the bottom and uh, with no oxygen comes fish sauce. So here are fish sauces. These are actually from Japan, uh, Ishiri and Ishiro, these two kinds of fish sauce from Noto. Um, and I'm amazed that they're not more common here. What we have is Southeast Asian fish sauce, which is what I first learned about. But these, these were really delicious, the Japanese fish sauces. Um, and they're used in that region, but not really so much in the rest of Japan. You know how people are quite local about and they have disdain for the specialties of other areas. Well, I think that that's how fish sauce is treated in Japan. So the other thing that you can do with, um, that I do with fish a lot, and so I'm just on a fish kick putting this uh, talk together. This is a salmon um, and uh, that I was about to grill. So I've smeared on it um, a a delicious flavor agent, which is um, shiokoji. And that is made out of rice and salt and koji, um, koji spores. Um, and it's, it's a, it's a fermented product. You can buy shiokoji, um, but it's really wonderful to make your own. Very, very simple. You mix salt, you mix in measured proportion, cooked Japanese rice at a certain temperature with salt and koji rice and mix them together and put them in a jar for a month. And then you have this, this ingredient that just gives a sort of slight, it gives umami is what it gives, but it's a seasoned umami. It's very subtle. So when I serve people fish at my house, they'll say, well, what did you put on it? What's this? Why is it? Why is it so good? You know, and I say, it's not, it's not rocket science. It's just shiokoji. So I'm just urging you to explore the idea of shiokoji um, because it's not scary. Um, this is another salt-preserved ingredient. Very simple. The Acadians, it's an Acadian thing that the Acadians from Nova Scotia and New Brunswick who uh, were kicked off the best land by, um, by, the, by the British when the British um, defeated the French at the end of the Seven Years' War the Acadians were kind of displaced people. Some of them ended up in, of course, in Southern Louisiana, and that's where the word Cajun comes from. But some of them uh, found their way back to more marginal lands in Nova Scotia and New Brunswick. In the winter, they didn't have much. I mean, it's dark, it's snowy, it's cold. and But in the summer, and they very limited repertoire in the summer too, but what they did was they took scallions, green onions, as we call them here in Canada, and chopped them up and they had plenty of salt and they mixed them with a lot of salt and then just put them in a jar and they don't have to be refrigerated. Of course, they didn't have refrigeration, but they would keep them in the kitchen. And then you can use a, a, some of it as a seasoning. You can use it as a sofrito at the start. And for me, I think it also probably gave them just a sense of the possibility of greenness in winter. 
I mean, just think about how short those days were and how cold it was and how miserable. Here you are, you've still got this, this hit of green uh, and this possibility of a version of freshness in winter. So it's a very useful ingredient, I find. And I like to smear some on a chicken before I put it into roast and I can toss some in a soup. And the important thing is just, you know, I use um I you don't exactly you don't know exactly how much salt you're adding when you're adding some of this. So then I hold back on salting until the end and then check and add a little extra if I need extra seasoning. And then another thing that will be familiar to you um is sauerkraut this is just just put into the jar sauerkraut so chopped cabbage um and salt those are the two ingredients that's all it takes and the salt draws the liquid out of the cabbage so that there's there's a liquid covering the top of the cabbage you put a cabbage leaf on top and weight it down to make sure that everything stays under the liquid and in two weeks and then it can be two years you have deliciousness. Um, I mean, I find it just one of those miracle foods. Um, and uh, salted lemons. So, you know, the traditional salted lemon, and I'd always read about, you know, in Paula Wolford and so on, the lemon cut into quarters, not cut quite through, and salt jammed on all the cut surfaces, and then the lemon jammed into a jar. And I'd never made them. It always seemed like a sort of work and kind of a bit rough, you know, jamming down these lemons. And so I thought, but I need salted lemons in this book. So I, why, why not slice them? So that's what I do. And um, so I did that and then uh, realized that there was a note in Claudia Roden's book of Middle Eastern food somewhere. She says, and in Egypt, um, people slice their lemons. And I thought, oh, good. I'm so glad that the easy way out, because I find these slices, it's easier to just take a slice out and use it or two slices. I have a I have a recipe for using salted lemon in a cake, but I also use it as a to sort of as a little pick me up in cook, cooked bean dishes and, you know, all kinds of places. You can put it in a inside a chicken. Um, and also the jar of salt. Salted lemons is just so beautiful. These are just made so you can still see the salt. It hasn't dissolved in all the liquid yet. And so salt, of course, salt for dairy. You know, you have all that milk in the summer, you know, in in anywhere where there are lots of dairy cows. Think about Gruyere, for example. I met a guy who who was a shepherd up who took, um, who managed um, a herd, was hired to manage a herd up in the Alpage. So there's few cattle from each household and they all are taken together up up into the high pastures in the Alps. And then there's a several people who are milking the cattle and making cheese. And well, what's cheese? Cheese is fermented milk, but the fermentation is controlled by, yes, of course, salt. So salt's essential in cheese making. It's essential as a control of fermentation so that we can decide how quickly things ferment and you know how salty we want things how much how much salt we need to control um the bad bacteria and yet encourage the good bacteria and then butter so butter this is a picture from tibet because it's such an incredible thing this huge whack of butter tibetans use butter in their tea because uh it's a portable thing and it gets kind of funky the butter in tibet um and there's salt in the tea 
and then people stop anywhere and make a small fire. Um, and uh, this is on people on pilgrimage around Mount Kailash, uh, which I which I did some thirty five years ago. Um, and um, so they eat butter tea, and they're getting a lot of nutrients from. Um, we might have tea with milk. They have tea with butter and salt. Um, and then some grain, some cooked grain and sampa. So I want to end with also a reminder that salt can be beautiful. The landscapes can be, they can be austere, they can be scary, they can be painful. But salt can be beautiful. And it also, of course, is a metaphor for lots of ideas. So this is a picture from the Venice Biennale in 2017. I've only been once and it was then. And I'd started work on this book and thinking, how am I going to do this book? And um, and this was an installation or a, a piece of pillars of salt. Um, and these are the salt was blocks cut. You see how it looks very like the blocks of salt from uh, from Ethiopia and the Danakil Depression. These layered look very beautiful. And every once in a while, in these pillars, uh, it was a it's a a Swiss artist called Charpentier, um, there would be a block, a glass block with lithium salt in it, lithium come in, in the liquid form. And so it was a mixture of old, old salt and old salt in a new form. And it was sort of a time travel. It was, it was, you know, a, a strongly symbolic notion of how we think about salt, pillars of salt, salt as a thing we depend on. Salt as expensive, salt as rare, salt as common, you know, all of those things. And the other, the other salt as metaphor image I want to leave with you is um this is an artist from Mexico, and um I have to look up her name. Uh, and she is she did a uh, an art um sort of a performance piece in Toronto. Um, and again, it was in 2017 or 2018. And uh, she, it was salt geographies, she called it. And she was blowing, um, making landscapes like you'd make sand dunes, you know. Um, her name was Elvira Santa Maria. And uh, it was extraordinary. And I sat watching her. She had this large area and these salts dumped in various places on the area. And she moved from place to place, blowing dunes and ripples and moving the salt around just with her breath. Um, and I sort of want to leave you with that and with this image of, you know, um, this is from Vancouver Island, very near where the salt is gathered, um, to say, you know, it's something that is necessary to us, brings a lot of pain, but it also brings survival, it brings joy. And it, for me, it brings a sense of wonder at how how we somehow this simple thing that's so necessary to us and bring us yes so much pleasure so i'm open for questions anybody okay uh naomi i'm going to start off with a live question uh non-chat but uh could you tell us a little bit about your fascinating background i mean how did an attorney get to be a, one of the foremost food authors in the country and uh yeah can you give us a little well, insight i i just I think it is, I mean, you know, I, I, I'm curious about how things work. And I realized that I wanted to, 
uh, live in a wider world than the world of law, even though I actually really enjoyed what I was doing, which was union side labor law. And then I had the good luck to meet my now ex. And so um, I had thought that I would go and live in a village in, in the mountains in Nepal and um, photo document a year in the life of the village, the food and the agriculture and so on. But then when we met, we decided, well, let's, we started traveling. Um, uh, we did these bicycle trips. And in the course of the bicycle trips, um, the the first big one we did, we we uh, we traveled in Western China and there were people, I mean, basically the only food people were eating in these, um, the Uyghurs and then people in the mountains as we bicycled into Pakistan was flatbreads. They were getting about 80% of their calories from flatbreads. And we thought, well, what about, why don't we do a book about flatbreads? <laughs> so that sort of, that sort of took us into explaining and trying to understand how people live in with very little in a way or in difficult places. And so that's just, I'm, I'm just curious, you know, that's really the answer to the question. And this has enabled me to live, um, you know, in the way I, and uh, in, in the way, in a way that pleases me and to raise two kids because you don't need that much money if you're prepared to travel frugally. And, and I just, um, I feel really lucky to have been able to to do all this. But let's not talk about me. Um, let's talk about something more interesting, please. Like salt? Yeah, salt, <laughs> you know, whatever. Okay, so so what kind of material is used for uh, for vessels to boil brine? Salt is quite corrosive. Yeah, it's a very good question. If you think back, if you don't mind me taking you back to prehistory, the early... Uh, um, the the archaeologists, there's a whole area of study called salt archaeology. I was thrilled to find this. And they had their first uh, conference in the early 2000s. Um, and the, uh, archaeologists look for um, these vessels that are made, they're, they're ceramic, but like very crude clay um, ceramic vessels that could have maybe two or three, like three legs on them or four legs on them that could be placed over a fire and could hold, could hold liquid. So it's, that's the, that's the first thing. Um, and uh, still people are using, they're now using metal. It's a good question. Uh, in Japan, that's metal. So I don't know how they deal with that question. And I've actually never asked myself the question. That's a really good question. I hadn't thought of. Thank you. Don't know. Um, but we know that, you know, people working in in salt areas like in the in the Gironde in France, people wear, of course, wooden clogs because wood doesn't corrode, um, as opposed to the woman in Gujarat who didn't have shoes at all. Um, but in terms of the vessels, I don't know how they deal with that question. Or do they just go through them and eventually get a new one? I don't know what the answer is in, in sort of modern times. Um, Thanks, Kathy. That's really, it's fun to think about. I'm going to have to go find out. Okay. Um, of the salts from evaporation, did you taste them? Was there much of a difference in flavor? I, you know, I, I, um, I think you can only really tell differences in flavor most of the time by parallel tasting, right? It's like, it's not the differences are not so marked that you can 
It's like smelling a perfume days apart. You can think I like this one. I don't like that one. But with salt, you're it's really close. So when I was at the, I mean, I've tasted salts in parallel in my house, you know, because I've acquired quite a collection of them from here and there. And there's a salt uh, shop in Tokyo, although I heard recently it had closed. I hope not. And I tasted a number of salts there. I think, I think the shape of the salt affects also how you taste it. So I'm not sure how accurate a comparison is if you tasted one flake salt and one with grains, if you see what I mean. Like that's how different it is because it's it's an aroma. The For me, if you have a, a raw salt, in other words, not, um, you know, what's the word? An artisanally produced salt. So it hasn't been stripped of all its minerals and all the little deposits there might be in there. The biggest difference is when you take a, a the lid off a jar is the smell. Like I like to seal my sea salt in a jar. So it's a cook's perk that you get to take the lid off and get this gust of smell. And the best smelling ones, I think, it's not particularly Malden salt, but the, the cold water ones like the Jacobson and the, and the Vancouver Island salt um, are really kind of marvelous. And some of the Japanese sea salts also have a really, I don't know, it's just a tang, but it's momentary. So you don't want to go spending money on uh, expensive salts, uh, uh, except for the table. You want to use a pickling or canning salt to salt your pasta water and your potato water and all that, because you're just getting sodium chloride to into the into your food. And so these other salts, the special salts, you want to you want to notice them. You want to ha- serve them in a in a place where they can be noticed for their color, for their maybe aroma, for that little bit of crunch. Um, but I don't think there's it's it's really all extremely subtle, is I guess what I'd say to you. Yeah. Oh, okay. This is a question that sort of was on top of that question, related to that question. But they said, seconding the earlier question about distinctions in taste and salt, harvested from different techniques. So if it's harvested with different techniques, does that affect the, the flavor? It probably is, but again, it's so hard to it's so hard to tell. You know, uh I think probably if you have a salt that's a flake salt again i think the shape almost if the salt comes to the surface and floats that's flake salts come they're allowed the water instead of being raked you saw those guys raking in maras for example the salt they got so concentrated they're raking it from the bottom and then they're going to let it drain the final liquid drain off it flake salts float on the top surface as you saw when there were the baskets hanging above those the boiling water early on the in Thailand, and there was a bit of there was crystals floating on the top surface. Now I think so. That's how you get a flake salt. And I, I don't know. For me, again, it's sort of how it comes into your mouth because a flake salt, you get a chance to kind of crunch it. I mean, it's it, you know, it's. Whereas a, a fine salt is what you're tasting is the salt. And as it interacts directly, I don't know, with the surface of your tongue or with some food that it's on. And I, I'm i just not, I'd be happy for somebody who is a sort of super taster and prepared to do that, to tell me the differences. But for me, it's it's more an idea than 
the actuality isn't the thing that hits me. It's the idea of it. Where's this salt from? Oh, let me imagine the people who who gathered it, you know, all of that. And and there is something about the flake salt, the flake sea salt that is really special. And there's a bit of a, see, when I taste the maras salt, I'm not sure if in my mind's eye, if if the pictures in my mind's eye from Maras, from that high place in Peru, make me think that I'm tasting a lovely little bit of sort of Incan dirt in there, or is it, you know, is it real or not? You know, I I just don't know because the the mind interferes with the with the tasting. I think so. That's a really wishy washy answer. I'm sorry unto the person who asked it, but and I'm happy to hear differently from people. No. So, so uh, Lisa said, can you talk about the pink Himalayan salt that's sold in slabs or crystals? Is that the real thing? How do they make it? So that salt is actually the old salt mine salt. So one of the it's one of the largest salt mines in the world. I mean, one of the largest salt deposits in the world is under or salt deposits that's being excavated and has fed people for centuries is under Ontario and upper New York state, right? So there's a huge salt mine in Sarnia, Ontario, opposite Michigan. They're north of Detroit. And um, that that salt in there is now used for petrochemical stuff and for roads mostly. But the salt in this area fed a lot of people. An equivalent huge salt mine is in Pakistan. It's the Kura salt mine. K-H-E-W-R-A is the usual transcription. And um, so it's not really Himalayan salt. I mean, you know, it's it's way down deep, but it's been brilliantly marketed. I mean, brilliantly marketed. And of course, it helps that it's pink. So you notice it. So it's like, oh, hey, that pink pin, isn't that beautiful? And then whatever genius in that company thought that they if they sold big, you know, lumps of it and it would, you know, they could make lamps of it and they could, you know, crystals. And anyway, so it's the real thing in that sense. Um, I'm not going to bother particularly paying for it because I don't care. You know, I mean, it doesn't speak to me. I just know it came from a big salt mine um, in Pakistan, Um, but it's lovely and it's very pretty on the table, especially in an array of salts, you know, I don't know if that answers the question, but it's uh, it's well, it's real salt. It's not, but I I don't see, I don't see it's any more special than salt that somebody you know gathered in, in an island in the Caribbean. You know, I mean, it's it's all it all originated in the sea, and some of it ended up now underground or in underground springs. But you know, it all started out as sea salt. So I went to a press dinner at. Um... David Burke Steakhouse, which has uh-huh. the salt cave where they age their steaks. Yeah. And and I said, can I see the cave? So they walked us over and it was a small room, but it had, you know, kind of your basic metal industrial, you know, whatever. Shelving. Shelving, thank you. And there was the big blocks of the pink Himalayan and there were sort of the steaks. It, it, it was like, you know, I think it was more show than anything else no of course yeah yeah i mean you know that's nice and it's great i mean let people be inventive you know that's good um right but um you know and no harm done you know but i I think the the only thing i'd say is i think the other piece of marketing that i think is people are spending on needlessly and 
I'm going to make a little pitch about this, which is is uh, kosher salt. So kosher salt is, of course, not kosher. It is for koshering. It's for koshering, for drawing blood out of meat. That's why the crystals are designed to be a certain shape so that when they lie on meat, they're most effective at drawing out the blood. So it's a tool. Well, all salt is a tool in some ways, but it's a tool. And so the two big manufacturers in the States, one of them is Diamond Crystal. And somehow, again, they did a brilliant marketing thing to chefs. It's The nice thing about, about the kosher salt is it's not fine, fine, so it doesn't stick to your fingers. It's got these flat crystals. They're all the same size because it's manufactured shapes. And so for chefs, they reach for it. And once you have a salt you're familiar with, you know, a pinch is a pinch, you know what it feels like. And so then chefs, oh, diamond crystal. And then, oh, chef, chef XYZ uses diamond crystal. And so as a home cook, you think, oh, well, if it's good for him, it's good for me and let me go for it. And so it's become a thing. But actually, diamond crystal is owned by Cargill. And I don't really kind of think I want to spend my money on something that is sold by Cargill, which is not really friendly to farmers or to consumers. And so, no, I say, <laughs> I use canning salt or coarse pickling salt, coarse canning salt as my salt to pick up as a pinch because it's not expensive. It's pure. It has nothing in it. Whereas some kosher salts um, uh, have uh, flowing other- agents. And and I just think why why am I why am I going to spend money on any kind of premium marketed product when all I want is salt to salt my pasta water or you know whatever my salt is my basic tool so that's my no, I, I agree and I actually got some very fine salt uh, I got a good deal so I was using that for a while and I had to the initial few things that I made I had to like really ratchet back because I was making yes. everything too salty. Exactly. So that's the thing. If you if you have a salt that you're used to um, and you're used to the feel of it and so on, and you change dramatically, then you really want to sort of be attentive because, um, because for example, say diamond crystal, it, the, those crystals don't pack very tightly. So right. that means, let's say a tablespoon of diamond crystal weighs about 45 grams. A tablespoon of table salt weighs 75 grams. That is more than half as much again, nearly double. So if you're switching from a from diamond crystal to even a different kosher salt, you're going to find things oversalted because um, your pinches are going to bring more saltiness because the weight of salt is the weight of sodium is the saltiness you're getting. I hope that's clear. Anyway, there's a chart in the book. It tells you. So if you switch, you can sort of think, oh, right, I have to pull back, you know, and this is why, or I have to increase because we, we have a body memory of the salt we're used to. And if you switch salts, I mean, your normal cooking salt, you need to kind of retool a little bit. Exactly. So what's the process used to purify the salt for human consumption? Well, usually in most places, and I think even in the Cura mine, they may, as in some places, they they use a they dissolve salt in water. I mean, once you dissolve salt, if you have even a hard salt, like a hard salt deposit, they used to, you know, people in there with pickaxes, as we think of going back to the salt mine, but now they dissolve it in water and they mine with water, water pressure, and then they bring it up and they boil it. 
And so the salt is, is, you know, is, is clean. I mean, it, it, everything else gets left behind if I can put it that way in the water. Um, and it, the salt itself floats on the surface. There you are. Um, that's, that's, that's sort of the, the basic, um, story of it. Um, now you did have that marinade that you put on the fish. Yeah. Is that in your book? Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. I just wanted to sort of, of, what's interesting is it, it, it comes from a place, you know, we think of Japan as rice and, and I think, well, here's rice and salt, these two essentials in Japan, you know, um, and this is the oldest, I was told that this was the oldest sort of form of, um, what did I say? Salt flavoring. I mean, this is early, early, early thing. So you, you, you cook the rice and then you add the koji rice and koji is, you know, is aspergillus spores. Um, and, and koji is used to make miso. Koji is used to, I mean, it's, it's the fermenting agent. It's think of it like, like dry yeast. It's that kind of thing. So you're mixing some koji, um, which is the fermenting agent and some salt and this cooked rice and the rice, the koji feeds on the cooked rice. The salt controls the fermentation and you end up with a slightly sweet, slightly salty, um, pasty thing that you can then smear on, you know, vegetables before grilling them or, or fish or meat, or you can add, you can even add to a, to a dressing to give it just this little extra umami, you know, in the same way as you can use miso, but it's quite a powerful taste. But if you use miso in a small quantity, I use it in ice cream, for example, to, in my ice cream recipes. It's really interesting. You don't think, oh my gosh, this is miso ice cream. You don't taste it as miso, but it's having, it has a role to play, right? It's affecting the flavor. And it's really, really interesting. In the same way as chefs, you know, long before um, the sort of general population uh, used soy sauce as a kind of a, and just as a seasoning, as an ingredient in the larder, in the flavor larder, or fish sauce, chefs were using them because it it amped up the the flavors in a soup. I mean, it's really kind of like a much more interesting version of MSG, right? Um, Carrie at, uh, made an interesting comment. She says, stunningly beautiful is the Wilixa salt mine in Poland with its St. Uh, yes. Kinga's Chapel. Have yes. you been there? I haven't been there. I've only been to the the um, the underground in Europe. I've been to the underground ones when I was young in uh, near Salzburg. But I've been told about the Polish one, and somebody sent, uh, brought me some Polish salt. There's also apparently a cathedral in Colombia in the country, uh, and um, I met some people when I was in Peru who said, "Oh, if you're interested in salt, you have to come to Colombia because there's this cathedral underground." I thought. How many, I wonder how many other places, you know, these extraordinary salt caverns, but has anybody else, somebody should put it in the chat if anybody else has been, because, um, yeah, it's a big tourist attraction. And apparently um, there's a, even a hotel maybe under there that people can stay at. I mean, it's quite an amazing place, but no, I oh, haven't look. been. I just got lost. Um, oh, you're scrolling. Oh, is, is food salt? Is food grade salt regulated? Um, she learned I'm sorry, I learned on a tour of the San Francisco Bay Ponds that the salt harvested there for 
industrial commercial use because of sedimentary contamination. Right. Yeah. So that, I mean, if anybody's flown into San Francisco, you can see those big salt ponds and different colors and so on. Yeah, it is. It does seem to be regulated. I don't know what regulation there is of the artisanal salts are our little precious bags of fleur de sel from here and fleur de sel from there. Uh, I don't know about regulation of that, but table salt for sure um, is regulated. Um, and uh, yeah, it's really interesting. I, I mean, most things sold for consumption, you know, the FDA um, has a finger in there somewhere, I think. Um, but I don't know exactly. Mm-mm. Okay, Mary uh, added a comment. She goes, my name is Salt. Is an interesting documentary about a family that works a salt field in India each year. Shows yes. the whole process. Yeah, yeah. And there's a there's also a really um, good, uh, there's a film about uh, salt gathering in Tibet as well in the winter. Somebody made a documentary. Um, yeah, it's, and there's a, a I, I didn't mention my name is Salt in the book, uh, but I did mention a film made about um, Svenetia, this remote region in Georgia, in the Republic of Georgia, high in the Caucasus, where um, it was very hard to, the salt had to come in over high mountains. And it, it was made in the 30s. It's black and white. And it's really about the grimness of life there. And it's called Salt for Svenetia because, you know, it was it was such a hardship and they were so short of it. And so there is a, Svenetian salt in the in the book, and it's there because uh, because they have a they're famous for their flavored salt. They take salt and add garlic and other flavorings, and I think it's to make the salt go further. Do you know what I mean? Like it's a strong tasting thing that's a bit salty, and so it's a way of extending something that was traditionally in very short supply. Uh, here's a question. <laughs> As salt is a necessity, how is it that people moved to and settled in places without a source of salt? It's a good question. I think they they uh, may have found themselves in places. You know, for example, if I think about Southeast Asia, people ended up in the hills because there were conquering people coming into the valleys and they were running away. I mean, literally, you know, you leave the the fertile when you're chased away in some way, you have to leave. And then you have to figure out how to live where you find yourself, which is usually in the hills, means in less fertile soils. Um, so you have to do more hunting. And then you have to trade with the people in the valley for for salt, like that Burmese guy was shoveling. Yeah, I, I, I don't think people choose usually to be in a place uh, that's awful, but they often find themselves pushed there or chased there. Uh, somebody, uh, K- Kathleen, commented about considering visiting the salt flats in the Caribbean. There was an extraordinary piece in an old exhibition in Brooklyn called Infinite Island, which was about the salt ponds of St. Martin and how yes. the cor- correlative, correlative ugh, labor was shaped the life there. Correlative? Sorry. Yeah, yeah I there's the uh, St. Martin and um, there's now a guy doing it in... Uh, Oh, that very small island starts with the B. But um, there's a guy named Jerry Simpson who was a food photographer. You would have seen his work in Food and Wine in the early 90s, a wonderful food photographer. And he started uh, Bakia. There's a salt, there's salt production in Bakia. Um, he's doing evaporation, solar evaporation. I haven't been to St. Martin, but um, yeah, interesting. 
You see, it is there are salt stories everywhere and salt places everywhere. And so it may be that I'm just going to go on being a salt kind of chaser um, because there's a lot to learn. I just learned a few days ago from someone who posted on my Instagram page that uh, she was she's studying Swedish medieval church law. Okay, are we in a specific enough location yet? And she said in there those texts she's found mention of the requirement to put some grains of salt on the tongue or under the tongue of a baby before it gets taken into the church to be baptized because that salt will then excise or exorcise any evil um, before the child comes into the church. So salt as purification. It's, I mean, the these stories just keep, there's just so much to, to, uh, to stumble across or to investigate. It's really interesting. Uh, here's a kosher salt question, but I think in a sense you've or answered it, but maybe there's an angle I didn't understand. I was wondering, these days, every recipe I read says to use kosher salt. I use sea salt in recipes because I can only find coat because I can only find coarse kosher salt. Is there a real difference? And I think in a sense you kind of covered that. Well, I think I would say don't bother with I mean kosher salt is always those flat crystals. And so this maybe this person prefers finer salt and in which case yes, yeah, sea salt or or whatever. I would say you can you can use table salt but of course, table salt is iodized, and we generally have the luxury in in living in a in a modern industrialized place of eating f- foods that come from from more than our immediate area. So we're in very little danger of iodine deficiency. So salt is iodized to pres- protect against iodine deficiency. One place where there was a deficiency of iodine, the thing, the place that got this iodizing of salt started was in Michigan. In the 30s, they started iodizing the salt because people living, just eating what they grew, you know, people living very locally were uh, short of iodine. And it causes not just goiters, but, you know, various forms of, um, anyway, various health problems in children and adults. And so the World Health Organization, after the Second War, decided that the best way of making sure that everyone had enough iodine was to iodize salt because again, haha, everybody has to have it. And that's why, you know, it's penetrated to places like Senegal and Thailand and so on. The salt is iodized. I don't like the smell of it. When I open the lid, the smell of iodized salt is sort of fair. Um, and I have the luxury of eating widely enough that I don't need to use it. But um, so, but I think otherwise to answer the question the sea salt is absolutely fine and there's no need to use any particular salt except if if there's a very precise measurement being used in which case you want to weigh your salt because the volume measurement is going to vary depending on which salt you use but if you're using a precise measurement of salt and you've been given a weight then use whatever salt you want okay if you've been given a measure and somebody says two tablespoons of uh, morton's kosher salt well, then you have to use that or you have to look and see what that weighs and then substitute um, an equivalent uh, weight of salt of another kind. Am I making and sense? I, and I do the rule of thumb of whatever the half of whatever the kosher salt calls for. 
So if it says a tablespoon, it's one and a half teaspoons. Yeah, and and that's roughly right. Um, but but you know, there's some variability, and then you could top sure. it up if you need to. Yeah, and that's where it's it's useful to have a chart just to check if you need to. Is there a difference in the processing of kosher salt? Well, no, it's, it, I mean, yes, in the sense that they're creating, they figured out a way of creating these crystals of a certain shape and thickness and so on. So it's just all about, and I don't know how you generate crystals, but they do. I mean, it's, you know, somebody figured it out. Uh, okay. So there's two, there's uh, the shape of salt is a science highly developed by the salty snack industry. And mm. then somebody added later, they worked for Pringles. I'm just looking for it now. Oh, great. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I worked on Pringles potato chip account. There's a chipper's salt, bigger crystals so you could get the taste right away. Yes, exactly. You see, you want, it's that whole thing of they're selling that that instant hit. You know, it's like chocolate that melts as it touches your tongue or whatever. It's, you know, it's that immediate mouthfeel that they're looking for so that you pick up the next one and then you pick up your beer or whatever. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a surface. They want a more surface of salt on your tongue. Interesting. Okay. Really I, interesting. Thank you. Oh, sure. Everybody. Uh, I don't happen to like the finer texture of diamond um diamond Crystal. compared to Morton coarse salt yeah. in New York City it's becoming difficult to buy fascinating I wonder if she's talking about Morton yeah it's and I think that's what I would just say just go and find some canning some coarse canning salt coarse means it's not fine it doesn't mean it's actually hugely coarse if you see what I'm saying it's sort of like hyphenated not fine <laughs> so there's fine canning salt and then there's coarse and I like the coarse because it's, I can pick it up. It doesn't stick to my fingers, but it's not hugely coarse. It's just, you know, it's easy to pick up. So that's what I use in all my, like when I was making, um, making my stew tonight, uh, I made a beef stew this afternoon and, um, you know, I use, I use my coarse pick. That's what the salt I kind of use for general cooking. Uh, how long do you pickle the sliced lemons? Oh, I can't remember. I mean, I'll look at the recipe. <laughs> I mean, they they're of course edible um right away. Let me just uh see. Because uh, I just put them in the jar and then I sort of have a look and when they look like they're little melty, let's see. The I say at the end of the recipe, the lemons will be transformed after about a month and they will continue to evolve after that and become sweeter refrigerate after opening they keep indefinitely um and i kept some uh salt preserved lemons for two years in the course of doing this book because salted lemons were the first recipe that i made when i started in on recipe testing and figuring things out and i kept i made two jars and i kept one of them opened um all the way through till now so that i could see if they lasted, see what they were. And they just became more and more sweet over. Oh, my mouth is watering talking about lemons. Oh, well. And, uh, and they were just, um, they're still fine. You know, they're still an ingredient. So maybe this was previously addressed, but doesn't salt have a significant downside? Aren't some folks sensitive to salt regarding their blood pressure asking for a friend? Uh Aha. Yes. Well, (laughs) You know, it's, I mean, I do, 
absolutely. The people who have the most trouble with salt that I know of are people who have kidney disease. So people who have kidney disease really have to just basically try to eliminate salt. And so they're not, you don't eliminate it absolutely if you're eating meat, there's a little salt and so on, but they really, it's down to almost nothing. And it's because the kidneys are struggling and salt is, is causes them to struggle more. So it puts a strain on a damaged kidney. So those people have to, what, what do they do? Well, it's really difficult. They cut, of course, cut everything out. Of course, they're not eating any processed food. That's the first thing to do when you're trying to cut back salt. And then they have to add, because salt brings out flavor. You know, our tongues are pretty primitive tasting devices. And it's our noses that help us taste, as we know, because when you get a cold, you know, you you lose all the interesting flavor um, when your nose is blocked. So, and what salt does is it pulls liquid out of out of um, ingredients, and basically, it's the, the liquid released liquid gives us its aromas that 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 flavor for us. So, people who have to have no salt end up having to substitute you know, some chili, some garlic, some just any sort of intensity of flavor, just to give them a sense that they've, they've had some satisfaction, you know, because they're not getting that gift of the salt, bringing out the flavors of the food. So they have to sort of substitute. Um, And if you, so on the high blood pressure question, um, I think if you're not eating, if you're not eating processed food, and you're eating and you're salting to taste, you know, too much salt makes us gag. Salt water, when we swallow it in the sea, makes us gag. Um, and just being mindful and cutting back a little, you're. it's very difficult to, if you're not eating processed food, you should be able to do that without it being, what's the word, without suffering. In other words, if you gradually reduce your salt somewhat, then because there's a margin within which we're comfortable eating and where things taste good. And you you can get more sensitive to salt as you reduce your salt, the amount you add, you can, and you can make things with less salt and then decide if you want to add a little as you're eating or not. But I think a salt shaker is a dangerous thing. I think you want to be adding salt with a, with a, with your fingers, just a little pinch because a salt shaker just, it pours out. And I think that's where people sort of, oh yeah, let me just drizzle, you know, salt, pour salt on my fries, you know. Well, you're kind of asking for trouble. So I think we know how to actually judge. It's just it doesn't have to feel like deprivation. Is I guess what I'm saying. And then you have people like my grandparents, where the no meal began without salting the food, which they had not tasted. No, yeah, exactly that. They because the assumption was, well, you know, there are a lot of people who really didn't season food at all. I mean, everybody ate very plain and then you salt it at the table. You know, that's, that's one way of doing things. And there's, there's households that still function like that with very little. I, I, I started a riot one night by hiding the salt shakers and then selling them taste the food. If it needs salt, I'll bring the salt, but if it doesn't need salt, it will stay over there. And what happened? I just got dirty looks. They ate the food. Yeah, it's okay. It's fine. Oh, wow. Wow. But that was a big, big deal yeah. that I did that. Yeah. Is water pollution a problem for making salt? I think one of the so. issues, uh, I, I don't know. I imagine it is, but I mean, most, you mean like 
ocean water pollution. I mean, most people are getting their, their if they're, if you're an artisanal manufacturer, you're going to a place where you think the water is clean, like that pipe going out into the ocean in the middle of nowhere on Vancouver Island. Um, uh, if you're, I mean, I think the Malden people have more problems because the Blackwater estuary is much more populated and there's oyster beds out in Mercy. And so I don't know how they deal with those questions. I think one of the issues we have to wonder about is um, is the microplastics. Oh, yes. And, uh, so I think that's an issue. And I haven't seen any adequate answer to that at all. Um, and of course, one way to look at that would be to say, well, I only want to have salt that comes from an underground source, right? Um, so it's it's something to think about. Um, but I've decided that I'm not going to think about it because there's too many other larger issues to think about. So I'm not going to obsess about the source of my salt. But that's everybody has to find their you know thing they're comfortable with. So I wouldn't at all poo-poo you if you said, well, I'm not going to have sea salt anymore because microplastics in the ocean. Uh, I think that's a, a reasonable attitude. I, I it's just I'm choosing to not go there in my head because as I say, there's too many other things that also are a crisis. And after a while, you just need to live. Yeah, well, you know, it's just you you have to pick your, you know, your things that you're that you're caring about and you're taking action on. So I'm trying to eliminate plastic containers in my house generally. Use those flat things for detergent rather than getting detergent in a big plastic bucket. And, you know, like it's, there's things we can do. Um, and so there's things we worry about, things we worry about committing in terms of pollution. And then there's things we worry about ingesting in terms of pollution. And I'm mostly not paying attention to the ingesting part. I'm just trying to be a better actor, but I'm um, sorry, this is soapboxing, but um, that's, that's how I'm coming at it. But everyone has to find their own, you know, mental health in this space. That's really complicated and and difficult so i think we've kind of run out of questions uh, there's been additional comments related to these salt cathedrals that you could read later okay. um, there was also some comments related to trade but you know uh but when it comes to actual questions i think i think we're done can i show, can I show them the book absolutely there it is i it's hold I, it up a little more huh up hold it up a little yeah there it's kind of nice, you know, and there's lots of pictures of, of the food and of, you know, salt flavors and, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, I think it's, people are going to find it really useful because there's, you know, lots of interesting things like some, there's pasta dishes and, you know, kimchi pancakes and, you know, just things from various places in the world that make use of salt preserved ingredients in various ways. You know, any favorite recipes uh, in in the uh, Naomi? Any of a couple of favorite recipes in there? Are they all your favorite? Well, no, I I just um, I mean, there's things that sometimes I'm proud of because I think, oh, that was interesting. Um, There's a really I made a cake last night. It's my kid's birthday today. Not a fancy um, cake, just a cake for eating as food, if you know what I'm saying. And it's uh, very simple, but it's um, it's a cake made with. Yo- the fats in it are yogurt and olive oil. There's no butter actually. And um, it's very simple. And I, I flavor it with salted lemons and um, and salted nuts 
or just plain ground nuts and uh, and uh, and whole wheat flour. But it's just a very easy cake. And I had there were a couple of people over, and they said, "Oh, oh, this isn't really sweet. This is just." And then the cake just went because they kept taking another slice because it was so easy to eat because it was you know not overwhelmingly sweet. I really like that cake. And there's on the sweet end again. And I'm not very good at sweets. I mean, I don't eat a lot of, I don't yearn for them, uh, is a miso cookie recipe with dark chocolate chips in it. And it's uh, adapted from a, a recipe of a dear friend of mine who's a, a master baker of, of whole grain baker in Toronto named Dawn at, of Evelyn's Crackers. And it's uh, it's another wonderful thing. But in terms of useful, fun things to start with, I think the duck breast prosciutto is really good. The and kind of an easy entry into oh gosh I can do this I can make my own flavors that I can I mean it's just sort of magic to feel that ability to make it for yourself instead of having to pay a premium a deserved premium to someone who made it for you or corned beef the corned beef is unbelievable corned beef you think oh ho hum but actually. Corned beef, if you if you make it, it sits in a brine, a flavored brine for, you know, eight days or so in the fridge. And then you drain it. I boil it briefly and then I roast it. And it the texture of it fresh and the texture of it then cold the next day when you slice it. It's just people say, I didn't know corned beef could be like this. So that's my pitch on corned beef. But really, I, I it's uh, some of this is just so so surprising. And you think people have been making corned beef for centuries. Huh? Why didn't I know it could be this good? Well, because somehow when you buy the beef and make it yourself, it really is often it is better, actually. Anyway, but there's somebody who wanted to say hello, uh, that you've uh-huh. been involved with for a number of years. Tony. Tony, you on? Hi, Hi Naomi. Hi. Good Who to see I? you. I enjoyed ah. your talk very much. Thank you. Um, and uh, there were a lot of things that I that um, um, resonated with me, and I I was uh, in, inclined to 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 make some comment on, but uh, uh, people didn't come here to listen to me. But I, I one <laughs> thing though, I can't resist. We <laughs> um, come to listen to you. <laughs> Uh, one thing I couldn't resist is um, the the little mention there you had of um, Japanese fish sauce, which is yes, um, is, is maybe not a secret anymore, but it's not very widely known. The Japanese don't push it. No, they really don't, and I really do think it's because there's a regional prejudice. In other words, people in Noto know about it and love it, and there's I'm I'm sure there's you know people elsewhere in Japan who use it, and chefs perhaps. But, you know, it's that thing of I think there's a bit of a, a disdain or a, well, that's their thing. But that's, you know, it's a it's a regional, you know, I think I think there's people stick with what they know. And fish sauce is weird if it's not your thing. I think that's perhaps, you know, an inherent conservatism. Well, yeah, I I, I, uh, I don't know, maybe uh, a dozen or so years ago, I did a paper for Oxford about about uh, garum in. in- yeah. Yeah, yeah. Reflections and yeah, I've read it. Modern Mm -hmm. Italian cooking and all, and I, I I actually spent a lot of time researching uh, uh, Japanese fish sauce. Then, oh, did you? Uh Uh Yeah, 
it, it looks like it's it's really it's very old, and it yes, oh absolutely, Japan, and it got replaced by soy sauce, um, in part with the Buddhist uh, movement. Uh, so as a as a non animal uh, source, yeah, um, yeah. But I also, if you think about, if you think about it, I I used to think, oh yeah, you have uh, you have uh, these fish sauces or soy sauces, whatever to preserve your your proteins, your amino acids. And I've been thinking when I think about the labor and the complication of salt in Japan uh, through timelessly, I think maybe also these were a way of of uh, extending salt. Uh, in other words, of of being more being able to be more frugal with salt. Yeah, well, I don't think there's you any what I mean, you know, the Romans, that's what garum was. Yeah, I mean, yeah for you, sure. You could send salt anywhere in the amphora, and you had a combination of the flavor, the the umami, and you had salt. And, and you had salt. Too many dishes, you know? Yeah, no, it's it's very it's so interesting to think of um the dance of you know the salt and the salted ingredient and and what fermentation brings that you know isn't always acknowledged. Yeah, but, thanks. And by thanks. the way, Tony was. Uh, to- Two weeks ago, did a talk on Italian beef that just went live on YouTube and SoundCloud today. And uh-huh. uh, and were there big arguments? I mean, you're in Chicago. Were people arguing about which? <laughs> I mean, I remember that discussion at the Oxford Symposium, and there was a fair amount of uh, opinionated uh, comment, not from him, but from everybody else saying, yeah, but which one really? Yeah, but which, you know, but why? But with the gravy, but without the gravy? Anyway, it was good. Yeah. Tony and I have friends who did a systematic review of Italian beef sandwiches, and it took uh-huh. them some months, you know, going around making their evaluation. And you know what? Stuff changes. And Tony really likes his Al's beef. And so when you come, Naomi, next time to Chicago, we can all meet at Al's. Well, there you go. There you go. I mean, that last time, though, that was pretty yummy what we had last time. We took her to Zero Goza last time. Yeah. Yeah, it was very delicious. And it was so interesting. And then there was this, yeah, this Oaxacan grocery just along the road from there. It was, I don't know if it's still there, but anyway, it was oh, it's a still there. Yeah, it was really wonderful. Well, I thank everybody for your attention and your patience. And uh no, um, and um I see you again maybe in person sometime. That would be a nice thing. Yeah, Naomi, yeah, and thank you for for your wonderful talk. And in addition, I want to thank everybody who was listening and and those of you who asked such wonderful questions, really spiced up things. So thank (laughs) you so much. And could you save the chat, please, somebody? I'm interested. Absolutely. Don't worry. You got the chat. Okay. No question. Okay. Bye-bye, everybody. Good night, everybody. Bye-bye.